0: If you would, turn in your uh, scriptures to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, Uh, either the Pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to look at the first uh, 14 verses, which I'll read for us in a moment. Uh, We've been looking at the book of Hebrews for a bit, for a number of weeks. We took a little break. We had Palm Sunday. We had Easter Sunday. We took, uh, looked at the book of James last week to talk about. Faith and uh, maybe more, it's more practical application for our lives uh, in the day to day and uh, regular part of our living. And this morning we're going to go back and uh, pick up where we left off in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I'm going to read the verse 14 verses and I want to jump right in and read this for us. So as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything has been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time for the new order. But when Christ has came as high priest for the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This is God's Word, and it's absolutely true. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, pray. uh, There's a lot here in this passage, uh, a lot of Old Testament, a lot of tabernacle, a lot of things that we're just not familiar with that seem kind of foreign to us. And so we pray that you would uh, guide and direct us and give us ears to hear and faith to apply these things. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. Before we look at uh, maybe the nuts and bolts of this passage and start to walk through it in in greater detail, I want to um, set the stage a little bit like this. Think about uh, the different worlds that we live in, the different mode of operation that we live in, okay? There's there's three of those primarily. You think about the physical world that you live in, okay? You took a shower this morning. You felt uh, the warm water. Uh, you, you put on clean clothes. Uh, you had breakfast. Okay. You, you hugged uh, your loved one. You got in the car. You felt uh, maybe the, the air or the, the heat uh, in the car coming on you, or you felt the breeze from an open window. Uh, you came in here. You shook somebody's hand, or you, you exchanged a hug, or something like that. We live in a physical world where, where we experience things by by our senses. Okay. We also live in a world of, of our mind. We read that passage a moment ago, and you it, it, it processed that in your head, okay? you thought about it. What does this mean? Blood, sacrifices, tabernacle, okay? I remember that uh, from the book of Exodus. All those little details that we uh, think about, and you know, we have minds, we have emotions, we, we put things uh, together. So we live in a physical world, we live in a world of our mind. Uh, and those things are kind of easy to live in for the most part. Uh, but I also live in a spiritual world. We have a, a spiritual side to us. Uh, and this can be the area that's uh, much more difficult for us to live in, okay? It's easy, you know, the, our physical world, it, most of the time it's great. Uh, we have everything we want. We've got great houses that we live in, great cars. We enjoy our work or we enjoy our free time, our hobbies. Uh, you know, in our minds we're doing uh, well. We're able to, to think through things and we're generally happy uh, we love our spouses and we, you know, a lot of good things that we're involved with. But sometimes our, our spiritual life can be more of, of a struggle. It'd be more difficult for us. Uh, but particularly so because we hit moments when our conscience kind of comes to the surface and we feel kind of weighty about something that we've said or something that we've done and we feel this sense of, of guilt. And even more to, towards that too in our spiritual life, it's not something that we can kind of just do independently. We need uh, direction from the outside. We need somebody communicating to us, somebody telling us truth and, and guiding us and, and steering the way, so to speak. We need God to, to work and to push himself to- towards us to give us direction. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the function of the temple or the tabernacle in the life of, of the Israelites uh, but also what does the tabernacle mean for us or the temple mean for us uh, today. And I'm hoping that we'll see as we move through this passage that it will give direction and insight into our own spiritual lives, the, the spiritual side of our life, how we live with God, how we commune with him, if you will, how we fellowship with him, and even how we, how we live our lives uh, spiritually with other people. It's easy to see as we've read this passage together uh, there's a comparison going on. He's taking the, the old covenants, uh, the, the temple back in the Old Testament. He's comparing it to uh, the new, the, the new covenant, Christ and what he's done and, and what that means. And those two points are really going to form our outline this morning in, in the direction I want us to go. Uh, so two points. If you feel like you're getting shortchanged, it's not the three points, then, well, you know, you can take it up with me later on. But two points. The first is going to be the limitations of the old. As we look at the old system, we're going to see pretty clearly, pretty quick, how it was limited. It didn't go as far as the people needed. And then we're going to look at the axis of the new. What is, what's the difference that Christ makes? And what's the difference that Christ makes with the old covenant, the old system, uh, versus the new, and what it says about us, particularly in the area of our, of our conscience, in the guilt that we have uh, before him. And so the first point, the limitations of uh, the old Really verses one through seven, paint this picture uh, of the temple in the old uh, Testament, uh, what fellowship with God looked like uh, back then, and maybe to make it easier to break down and kind of give some categories to to that temple worship, I want to talk about it in three ways. I'll talk about the place I want to talk about the offering, and I want to talk about the approach okay the place, the offering the approach first let 's think about uh, the place, the earthly sanctuary that this uh, that these verses uh, paint before us, that they describe. I don't know if you've ever. I'm sure you've been in a backyard before, but you've seen a big ant hill. That's, that's there, and you go up in it, you just kind of, and you kick it, hopefully with closed-toed shoes, and you kick it, and you look underneath there, and then you see all these ants making all this activity, running around and doing all this stuff. They like all these jobs, and they just go on autopilot. In a sense, that's kind of what we see in, in the temple of the Old Testament. In the sense that there's always this activity. There's always, you know, the sacrifices that were needed to be made. Uh, oil that needed for, for the lamps, Bread that needed to be put out uh, on the table there. Uh, all this activity. It's like this church service that's going on and on and on. Just 24-7, seven days a week, unending. And he paints this picture. You've got, um, you've got the outer courtyard, which he doesn't talk about. But inside you've got this holy place. And inside that holy place, you've got some furniture. There's a lampstand there. Uh, There's a table uh, for bread. And all those pieces of furniture have special meaning in the worship uh, for God's people. And you've got ministers uh, or priests there that are busy about tending to the activities that are there. And then it talks briefly about the Holy of Holies, uh, this space that's separated by this curtain where only the high priest would go into and only once a year and we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment but D.A. Carson makes this point if you were to read through Exodus in those chapters in the, the latter half of the book of Exodus that, that go into great detail about the temple and how it's to be constructed and the furniture and what it's to look like you would come across this phrase that's repeated according to the, bat, the pattern God provided according to the pattern God showed according to the pattern God showed you would see it over and over again and part of that is, is certainly so Moses and the crew would say this is the way God wants it and we're going to do it like this, but also to say that they're following a pattern. They're following something that's been shown to them, something that's been modeled to them. It's not like with this temple they can say, all right, God told us to build a temple. Uh, give me the, y'all go out there and give me your, your five, I'm going to take the five best uh, architectural designs for this and my team of people will decide what, what the best temple will look like. God says, this is what it's going to look like. This is the specifics of it. This is the pattern that you are to follow, okay? That's the place. Second thing is the offering. You see this in verses 6 and 7 where the priests enter the holy place. They're they're, they're doing their ministry, ministry of sacrifice. But notice especially verse 9. Hebrews writes, The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Gifts and sacrifices were being offered, but it wasn't able to really deal with the conscience of those worshiping, or the one that making that offer. Now think about the conscience for a moment. What is the conscience? Okay. Think about it like this. One of my favorite shows is, is Law and Order. Okay. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's only been on for like 50 years. Okay. And um, you've got two parts. It's about the, the system, if you will. You've got the, the police and then pursuing uh, criminal. Usually it's always a murder case in the episodes I watch. And then you've got the courts. You've got the lawyers, the judges, in, in that system. Both those systems, any civilized society has some form of, of law and justice in it. Okay, so the, the police, crime's been committed. It's, it's a murder. They investigate, uh, and they find a suspect, and they re- arrest that individual. They think he did it, okay? And they take him, and they turn him over to the courts. And once he's in the courts, two things will happen, one of two things will happen to him. Either he'll be found innocent, uh, the charges against him, the accusations, they just don't stand, that uh, they, they, he didn't do it, he's the wrong person, and he's released, and he goes on uh, and, and lives his life, okay? But if he's found guilty, he's found guilty and he suffers punishment for it, Okay? That's the legal system. It's, it's, it's the legal system that this system is, is pursuing an individual until either he's released, he's not found guilty, or he's found guilty and he's punished. Our conscience is like that internal law and order system, meaning it, it pursues us until one of two things happen. Our con- conscience gives us a sense of guilt. There's something wrong. You've done something. This is not right. And either you think about what you've done, that alert comes on, and you think, you know what, what I did? I, it wasn't unbiblical, okay? It didn't go against God and what his commandments, and you move on. But more often than not, we find that we've done something, and it goes against our conscience, and it weighs on us, and we're found guilty. And when we're found guilty, we need to repent and turn away from that. Verse 9 is saying that sacrifices in the temple were not clearing the conscience, We're not going to the inner man, if you will. They would celebrate, think about it like this. The Israelites would celebrate this day of atonement once a year, okay? And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with this sacrifice of blood, make this offering to atone for the sins of the people, and everything that the Israelite committed that year, so to speak, would be atoned for. But that Israelite knew when he walked away and he committed another sin, or another sin happened to him. Uh, that it's going to have to happen again. He's going to have to again go back for the Day of Atonement. And year after year after year, you can see what that's doing. It's not completely clearing. It's not going to the, to the core of the problem. It's not going, reaching the inner man. It's great for the outside. It's making clean all the washings, all the ceremonies, all the special things that are to be done. But it's not getting the inner man. It's not reaching deep inside him. It's not getting to his conscience It's not purifying his conscience, if you will. Last one, uh, the approach. This we see in verses 8 through 10, where he talks about the way into the presence of God, the way to know him, verse 8 especially. The way into the most high place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning, meaning that, that the people could not get in and see God. Only the high priest, and only once a year did he go inside. And so the, the, the people had this tabernacle, had this tent uh, of worship, but they weren't able to dwell with God. They weren't able to really draw near him, and so they, their worship was limited under the old covenant, if you will. Andrew Murray, in his uh, work on this passage, makes this kind of observation. He says that the temple is great, and the temple says, come and worship me. That's what the temple says. God, God wants to be worshipped. He wants you to draw near to him. He wants to relate to him. He wants you to know him. But the temple also said, stay back. You, ha- you had God's uh, grace drawing them, God's love drawing them to him, to worship him. But you had God's righteousness or God's holiness saying, not too close. There's a, there's a limit, so to speak, in how close we can come. And so think about it, as, as long as what this verse 8 is getting, as long as that is standing that tabernacle is in use, as long as the old covenant is used like that, there's going to be limits to the access we have to God, that the way we can see God's glory in our lives. Which leads us, I think, maybe to, to talk about, I think for a moment, what's the point of the tabernacle? What's the point of the temple worship? What's the point of, of the law and the sacrifices? What is it supposed to be about? Is it about the ritual or is it about something more? Think about it like this. Psalm 51, verse sixteen. verse 16, David says this, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifices, O God, o God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Here we are talking about the tabernacle, the significance of it, the importance of it, how it's, uh, it's so central in their lives. And then we get David here, and we hear what God's opinion of the tabernacle is and It's like God is saying, you think I want blood the blood of bulls and goats? You think I want these animal sacrifices? You think I need, need these things? I need to consume them? That's not what it's about. That's not the point of it. The point of the tabernacle, the point of these sacrifices, is for you to see how serious sin is, how weighty of a matter it is. It's not about the ritual. It's not meeting that end, but it's about what it represents. And what God desires of us is not... In the case of the Old Testament, saying is not more blood, not more livestock. What he wants from us is a broken heart, a contrite heart, a heart that says, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to know you. I know who I am, and I know my needs from you. Think about it like this. Somebody made this great comparison. It's like imagine a couple that's engaged, and all that that engaged couple is living for is that wedding day. All they talk about is that day, that ceremony, the dress, the outfits, the, the catering, the food, the candles, the Everything about it, that's all they talk about. You would begin to scratch your head because the wedding's not about the celebration. The wedding's about your marriage. It's about living together. It's about being in that relationship. It's the same with the sacrifices. It's, it's not about that ritual so much as it what those, those things point to. God is holy and we fall short. In our sin, he takes very seriously. So in light of that, let's look at the, the axis of the new. The, the second point here, the axis of the new. Look at verse 11. The author makes it a turning point. He says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood, by the blood of bulls and goat, by the blood of goats and calves, excuse me, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. When it says goats and calves there, what it's talking about is that day of atonement, that day that's, that's drawn out specifically in, in Leviticus 16 of what that celebration looks like. And so here's what it would look like in a, a little bit greater detail, and it'll make sense in a moment. High priest would go into that Holy of Holies once a year, and for the week leading up to that time, he would kind of separate himself from the people, He kind of live uh, apart from them because there's that fear, I don't want to touch somebody that's going to make me unclean. I don't want to, to, to mess with that. And so he just kind of removes himself. He spends that week uh, in prayer and fasting uh, as he's anticipating that day going into uh, the holy of holies. Um, he's uh, receiving the prayers of the people. The, the prayer of the people are, are supporting him. They're, they're, with, they're with him, so to speak. They know what he's going to do, and they're in his corner praying and supporting him. When that day arrives, uh, he spent all night before praying, up all night praying and fasting, uh, getting ready uh, for that time. And the last day, there would be, there'd be a lot of washing, a lot of putting on clean garments over and over again to go into this space. It was a big deal, weighty deal, going in with this blood to, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would go in there on that day with that blood to make atonement we're told in verse 11 of something different. When Christ appeared, he appears as our great high priest. And he goes in not to an earthly tabernacle, but what the earthly tabernacle pointed to. He entered once for all the holy of holies. Not an earthly holy of holies, but what that earthly holy of holies pointed to. And he goes in not with the blood of bulls and goats, but he goes in with his own blood, with his own life. To make sacrifice, to make atonement for us, for his people. Think about Jesus on the, uh, the day before, the moments before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at this a little bit on Monday, Thursday. Here is Jesus, and he uh, knows what's about t- to happen to him, and he goes to the garden and he prays. And he says, disciples, pray for me. What do the disciples do? They fall asleep. Uh, that There's no prayer support there at all. And he's praying to God, God, would you not let this happen? And, and God does not respond. He doesn't give him what he wants. And you think about those moments when he's arrested and he's on trial. Uh, the people leave him. They abandon him. They want nothing to do with him. They desert him. They, they turn their backs on him. And you think about what he looked like as he was going to the cross. He wasn't wearing beautiful white garments. He wasn't clean, pristine. But he was a bloody mess. He was basically naked, and he goes to that cross, and he dies for us so that we can be redeemed, so that he can atone for our sins, so that we can know what it's like to have our conscience clean, that condemnation that we feel because of our guilt, because of our shame, that he can make us clean. Let me close with this illustration, maybe to make it more personal. I'll, I'll pray for us. In Nazi Germany, there was a, a man named Albert Speer, and he served uh, for Hitler during World War II and during that horrible period uh, of time. And he was an industry guy. He kept uh, the, the factories going and kept those things clicking so that Nazi Germany could prosper. And of course, uh, they lost the war. And he was one of, let's say, 24 individuals that were put on trial, the Nuremberg trials. And he's the only one that said during those trials, I'm guilty. I did it. What, what you said is true. I've, I've done this. And he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Well, sometime after that, uh, he, he was let out and he did some interviews and began to talk to people about uh, his experience. He'd written some things about what had happened. And he is noted as saying, whatever I, all the things I did, those things shouldn't be forgiven. And if they could be forgiven, they, sh- they shouldn't be forgiven. They shouldn't be uh, gone. And he's sitting down with this interviewer and talking to him, and the interviewer's pressing him a little bit, and he says, you, you've said that none of these things uh, need to be forgiven. They shouldn't be. What you've done shouldn't be forgiven. And the uh, Spears respond, it's like, you know, I could sit here and say, you know, I spent 20 years in prison for the crime I committed. My punishment's been paid. My debt's been paid. I can move on and, and live, and that should be the end of it. But he said, I, I can't do that. I know what I did to, to millions of people. How I had a hand in that tragedy, and I shouldn't be forgiven. And the interviewer is still kind of pressing him, still pushing him a, a little bit. Are you sure? And he says, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to know this kind of forgiveness. Well, think about it. Uh, so here's Spear, and he's saying that my conscience is burdened, my conscience condemns me, and that's the way it should be. I should have this guilt. There's no way I can be released, if you will, from that so think about another man that we read about in the old testament excuse me in the new testament we read about the apostle paul think about his life what did he do before christ came into his life he was persecuting the church he was going around with henchmen seeking christians to arrest families that he could rip apart uh, the damage that he could do to this uh, new uh, religion if you will Uh, seeing people killed and martyred for their faith he was a part of that and yet, in Romans 8, verse 1, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Where does he get that? Because you've got Spear saying, my crime is so bad, my conscience is so burdened, there's so much condemnation on me, I shouldn't be forgiven. And yet Paul, who's got just as a bad a resume, if you will, the damage that he's done, he's able to say, uh, there's no condemnation for me. You look at the end of Romans chapter 8, and you get this. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is simply saying what? He's saying, I've got somebody that intercedes for me. I've got a high priest who intercedes for me. And the message of Hebrews chapter 9 is this. That God has given you a high priest that intercedes for you. That your conscience can be made clean. That your guilt can be taken away. The condemnation that you feel was nailed to the cross. You don't have to bear it anymore. And here's the thing. If you let that truth really do its work, and you take it beyond, you know, yeah, I get that, I understand that. But you really let that work into your heart, let that work into the center of who you are, it's going to change you. It's going to make a difference in your life. That there is no longer any condemnation because we have a high priest who intercedes for us. Are you willing to believe that? Would you pray?